as we continue in our journey. It seems cliche to me sometimes when I'm told to rejoice. I thought of the text yesterday that this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Isn't that, isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? That that has become cliche. What do I mean? It's just normal dialogue, everyday niceties. We have come to a place in our culture where even unbelievers, unconverted, unregenerate people, have a sense of spirituality. Yes, this is the Lord's day. Like the Lord is good. All the time. And all the time. The Lord is good. And beloved, I think if we're honest, I think we must say to ourselves, I'm not glad. I'm not rejoicing. And when we do, oftentimes we're in a temporary state of happiness because somebody has said something that maybe gave us a smile, made us laugh, given us some good news. But if we're really honest, we're going to back out of that emotionally, psychologically, and we're going to go, I'm not really rejoicing. I'm not really glad. Because rejoicing and glad is not the status quo. Rejoicing and gladness is not, the, is not, the, is not par. And it's certainly not subpar. Rejoicing is akin to what happens when we're watching a sporting event and our team scores. And our team wins. When our children earn an award. When we see a great amazing act of heroism and we feel excited about it that's what we've come to think rejoicing is rejoicing is greater than that I think that's par I think that's the mundane that's the normal in the secular way and in the fleshly way and in the worldly way in which we find joy and excitement and gladness and, 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 and we express that, that's rejoicing. Rejoicing is to express our gladness. Rejoicing is to be grateful. Rejoicing is to be settled. Rejoicing is to have a soul that smiles no matter what. So who's rejoicing? Are you? Am I? Well, beloved, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think the world rejoices. I don't think the church really rejoices as a norm. Because when we come together and we come from the week that we've just had. Now, this is day one of a new week. You realize that now. This is not the weekend. This is the beginning of a new week. This is Sunday. Every calendar in the world. This is day one. The first day of the week. We all come together from the week we've just had. And it could have been pleasant. It could have been fun. We could have had great experiences. We could have had some hard times. We could have been tired. We could have had energy. We could have been healthy. We could have been sick. We could have had all sorts of things going on. But beloved, I promise you, there's been good, bad, and ugly. There's been times of joy, times of pain. There's been things. It depends on what we look at, too. Sometimes our life is perfect. But we tend to want to feed our hearts and minds garbage. 
it's hard to watch the news right now and even spell the word joy. It's hard to pump gas and not kick and curse. It's hard to, it's hard to look around and go, wow. Why? Because this world is not good. Yet we are in it. We are in a place where we're told to be glad. We're told to rejoice so that when we come together and we have the music leader, you know, singing songs of joy and gladness, all I have is Christ. Woohoo! And a mortgage and bills and uh, back pain and uh, frustration and kids that don't listen and, oh, you know. Why don't we add that stanza? Why don't we add that stanza? All I have is Christ and a whole bunch of crap on top. That's the honesty of it all, right? I, I shouldn't have said that word. I'm sorry. <laughs> all your parents are going, oh, now I've got to wash your mouth out. <laughs> sorry. But that's what it is. It's just a bunch of junk. We've we got a lot of junk. So how is it that we, all we have is Christ? How is it that it feels normal to come into a, after a week like we've had Good, bad, or indifferent, and then have somebody stand up here and go, Rejoice! Ain't it great to be joyful in the house of the Lord? And it just excites us, and then, you know, we're like, Yeah, we're faking it. Or we feel a little bit of something, and we call that the Spirit. It's not. If you're feeling something, it's not the Spirit. The Spirit's going to teach you something. God is in the business of teaching us something. Then we might feel something. But the feeling is not our foundation. I'm not denying that we can feel joy. So what do we do with that? We're told to be glad. We're commanded to rejoice. Yet as Baptists, we're sort of stodgy. And some people say, well, you're not rejoicing at all. The louder the organ, the more depressing the music, right? That's what somebody, some, some people think. It's not about that. It's about the truth. Rejoicing is something that God settles. Rejoicing is the outflow and the work of God the Holy Spirit as He teaches us. And some of us think, well, I already know these things. Well, yeah, we might know things, but are we intimately involved in that knowledge? Are we with Christ every day? Are we in His Word every day? No, we're not. We're not. And you may think that I am in the Word so much that I don't have time to bathe and eat. But as you can see, I'm not nasty or malnourished. Because we do other things. And we're not in the Word nearly enough. And then we wonder where our joy is. We wonder where our intimacy is. We wonder we're on a supernatural work of God. But yet the Word of God is where we find that intimacy. And, and, and friends, just like I said this last week, we can watch a movie with a character that we enjoy who acts out a false narrative that never existed, even if it's based on true events. It's never accurate. And we lose ourselves in that. I was watching a movie this past week, and it was a, a movie about an inner city impoverished area and this young girl was being harassed and almost attacked and somebody saved her and I thanked God that she was okay and then immediately I went 
<laughs> Just thank God for this plot. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? But that's what we do. We just sort of escape. Friends, I think we do the same thing in our faith. I think we come to church sometimes to try to pretend that we're not in the world. I think we come to church sometimes and, and, and we're trying to figure out how to act the part. I think we come to church sometimes where we're, where we're stubbornly thinking that everybody else is where we want to be, but we're going to have to pretend to be where everybody else is. And the truth is, none of us are anywhere near where we ought to be, but we're absolutely, positively where God has us. And so our rejoicing is in spite of who we are. Our rejoicing is in spite of how we feel. Our rejoicing is in spite of what's true in the world. Our rejoicing is in spite of anything that we are experiencing. Our rejoicing is in spite of our own joy. Our rejoicing, as Peter would say, is often inexpressible. I mean, think about it for a second. Inexpressible. And filled with joy. Our joy is often inexpressible. That's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1. That though we have to deal with these things, we have to suffer the way we do, we are lamenting, we are weeping, we are wasting away, as Paul would say to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. But yet we're not, we're not destroyed. We're not abandoned. And though we are on a hellacious experience of life in the ship that doesn't seem to be a cruise for enjoyment our joy is complete in the knowledge of Christ given by the power of God our faith is powerless but the one to whom it points is powerful and the reason I start out with that is because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, as we get into next week, is going to say about how thankful he is for who he is in Christ. And most importantly, he's thankful to Christ for what he's done for Paul. And then he's also thankful that he has been called to suffer and pour himself out for the sake of the Gentiles that they may know this same joy. But you don't find any practical teaching in Paul or Peter or James on how to get out of trouble and how to stay out of pain and how to avoid suffering. As a matter of fact, you get the exact opposite. You get the exact opposite. You are told in this instruction as we glean from it and are taught by it that these apostles told these people in the first century, these saints as we call them, to endure. I mean, you don't have to endure bliss. Oh, somebody just gave me a million dollars. I guess I'll have to accept it. <laughs> you know, a new car. Oh, gosh, now I've got to wash it and change the tires. I mean, no, that's not what we do. We jump up and down. Woo we fall and break our leg, and then we, you know, when our leg heals, we drive our new car. Somebody gives us a free car. We don't endure joy. We endure suffering. We endure hardships, we endure pain, we endure burdens, we endure heaviness. We're not picking up marshmallows and saying we're working out. 
Might be growing out, but we're not working out. We're not enduring heaviness. So the whole idea of endurance is to hold fast, to maintain course, to not fall under the pressure. So this is the teaching of the apostles to the first century Christians who in most of their lives saw Jesus. Could you imagine being able to say, yeah, I saw Jesus live one time. Week after I watched the Eagles in concert, you know. I mean, he was out there teaching. I didn't even have to have tickets. They just let me in. I mean, this was, the, this was the context of the first century church. A lot of those people would be able to say to their children and grandchildren, yeah, I, I was there at the Passover when Jesus fed 5,000 people. I knew Paul. I knew Barnabas. Paul was horrible, man. He, he had Timothy killed. You remember Timothy? Cousin of them and all down the street. Yeah, man. I mean, he killed that guy because he just quoted the Old Testament. He stoned him to death. I mean, I mean, that has some clout, right? Here's a guy talking about Jesus. Here's a guy learning from the guy talking about Jesus. Here's the guy that knew Jesus. Who are you going to listen to? Well, beloved, the twelve walked with Jesus. And they were miserable. So what are we looking for? Are we, are we living a fool's errand? Are we lying to ourselves and thinking, you know, we come and we're going to rejoice and be glad? Are we pretending to be glad? Don't pretend to be glad. Don't hide the truth of what you're experiencing in life. And anyone who can't accept the truth that you are a downtrodden soul in need of ministry and most of all mercy, they're not your friends anyway. And they're not going to give you anything but a hard time. And you're under no obligation to that. So there's some practical illustrations of what the Bible would teach. But press into the pain and press into the suffering, not in your own strength and your ability. We don't train to be able to endure. We rest. And that resting is what God permits and what God produces and what God provides in the gospel of Christ. And so here we're told to be glad and to rejoice and we're looking for that, right? You know, the cults will knock on your door and they'll say, Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about peace. That's their stick. What do you think? Wouldn't it be nice to have peace? Now, see, this is a good time. Somebody knock on your door and say, wouldn't you like to have peace? So whether there's a war going on or an economic problem or a pandemic, if you're a parent, you're thinking, yes. In the best of times, would you like to have peace? Yes, I'd like to have peace. You're taking my children. Okay. You're taking my neighbor. You're taking my spouse. Get them out of here. I want peace. And then what do they do? Well, I want to talk to you about peace. And everybody likes to hear about peace. I mean, every beauty pageant in the world, every star that ever got a crown, we're going to talk, I want to see world peace. <laughs> every politician will bring, bring peace. But what do they do? He brings a sword. Because when we rest in the peace and the grace that comes through Christ alone, it offends the world at large, especially the religious world. To rest in Christ is offensive to the masses. It's offensive to the religious. It's offensive to the self-righteous. It's offensive to the heady. It's offensive to the professional. Timothy wasn't a professional. Paul wasn't a professional. And last week we ended up in verse 11 there. 
And Paul was saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the law should be understood and used lawfully in good and that it was laid down for the disobedient, for the guilty, for those who deserve death and those who do anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine in accordance, listen to this, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now we've already talked about stewardship several times. We know that Paul is a steward of the gospel. We are a steward of the gospel. We're a steward of the law of God. We're a steward of the righteousness of God. We're a steward of the message of Christ. We're a steward of one another. We're a steward of our own lives. This does not belong to us. Our lives are not our own. We've been purchased. So now we see in the Bible this little phrase that I think as it turned in Timothy's mind, it made clear sense to him. So when Paul said, or those who live and act in any means, in any way, or any activities or whatever, this contrary to sound doctrine, to sound teaching, in their lifestyle, and he's already talked about those who teach things that are contrary to sound teaching, doctrinally, and I can't stand the fact that we use that word to mean theology, but theologically, the teaching about who Christ is and the teaching about how we ought to live. It's doctrine. The word doctrine literally means teaching. That's all it means. And then we can turn it into something else and, and build it into... There's the doctrine of economics, okay, for those of us who are into that stuff. It's not found in the Bible, though we can find about the economy in the Bible and see how we are stewards of that which God has granted us and so on and so forth. The point is, when Paul said the word in accordance with the gospel, and here's what I want you to focus on this morning, the gospel, what is that? The good report. That's what that means. And a literal translation would be the good report of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, for those of you who have gone through John with us, we're going to restart John in a couple of months. We're going to just keep going through John for the rest of our lives. I'm joking. We're not going to do that. But I would love to preach out of John again. So I just do it to myself every day. But glory. We're looking for joy. We're looking for rejoicing. We come together. We have a reason to rejoice. And the reason we are able to rejoice is because we have a blessed God who is glorious. I mean, we use that word now, what? We use the word glory all the time, don't we? Glory! Have you ever had anybody say that to you in public? Just out in the market? Glory. I do too. I'm like, what you talking about? It scares you, doesn't it? Because these aren't, people don't say, it's not like, Glory. You know, people don't say stuff like that. They don't use that word like that. It's like, yeah, like Trey's like, it's good, glory! It's a, you know, he put his hands up stretching. I'm like, yeah, there you go. People, that's what they do. And they're so excited, they get out of the gas pumps and they're doing a little moonwalk. Glory! Glory! You've seen them. You've not seen that guy? Okay, we'll have to, we'll have to get you out more. <laughs> Levi, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, and, they're, and they're everywhere you go, every town you go to, there's always going to be somebody, if you stay long enough. I've been in Short Pump, Virginia, at a gas pump. And some dude saw a sticker on my car that had reference to something biblical, and he said, Glory! I'm like, no, it's James. 
But we use it. Or we'll say glory be to God. What does that mean? Do we even know what it means? Do we comprehend what God through Paul was teaching Timothy? Or is that turning in our mind in the same way? What does it mean? Well, beloved, I think that we'll find the settledness of our soul and the rejoicing and the gladness of our heart when we comprehend the terms that are necessary for us to embrace what Scripture is teaching us. And so for the, for the sake of our own joy, we need to arrest these words. We need to understand the gospel of glory is not just a cool way of talking about the message of Christ. It's an emphasis. And I do, I'm glad we have the word gospel, but it is a transliteration of a very strange, archaic language that doesn't even translate into our vernacular at all. Godspel. G-O-D-S-P-E-L-L. Godspel. And that's how you'd say that. What does it mean? The good speak. Gold, G-O-D. Good. That's what it means. Goldspoon. So we have gospel because that's the closest thing we have in our language as they continue to change the term. The Greek word is evangelon. Or as we say in English, evangel. It's gospel. But I mean, we have the word gospel, but we don't know what it means. We, we're just thinking, oh, that's... You know, 1 Corinthians, this, that, the other, this is that, that, the gospel. All that God has revealed concerning Christ is the good report. All that God has revealed concerning himself is the good report. When God and when Jesus preaches to the multitudes in Matthew's gospel, we see even the term for gospel, evangel, we see it used when Jesus is preaching Wrath. So there's the gospel of wrath and the gospel of grace. The good report of God's redemption and the good report of God's justice and the good report of God's wrath and the good report of God's mercy. Because everything that God reveals is a good report. But when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's specifically dealing with the good report of God redeeming His people alone in the person and through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ for His own glory. So we've got two words there that are discombobulated in our own vernacular. They're discombobulated. What does that mean? Exactly. Completely out of sorts. We don't grasp it because we're, we're so used to the terms and our own understanding of the terms that we've never really defined them. Glory. What is glory? So if it's the good report of the glory of God, what does it mean? We just, didn't we sing it a couple of weeks ago? I will glory in my Redeemer. And so there's a lot there. But what is, what is the glory of God? See, the Bible alone will give us what we need in order for our minds to be pressed into the truth of what God has revealed. And we will understand things theologically as we read the Bible a lot easier than trying to learn theological things than go to the Bible to prove them. 
We were talking this morning about how, you know, with all the experts on YouTube, we can do a lot of things on our own, right? Brain surgery. A lot of stuff like that. That's a joke. But it doesn't mean that we know what we're doing. We're just following the example. I mean, if I'm taking out this and taking out this and I'm going step by step, all right. Oh, no, they didn't put it back together. I have to watch it backward. Uh, you got a piece or two left over, just throw it away. Try to crank it up. I don't know anything about certain types of electrical things. I don't know. I don't even have the equipment to test certain radio things, but I can take apart certain radios and get them working according to the one, two, threes. I don't know anything about how it works or what it's doing. I just know I followed the path and I got to where we are. There's the Christian life for most of us. There's our doctrine for most of us. There's our theology for most of us. So you listen to me and you go, yep, that's right. Yep, 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 yep. I'm going to remember that. And it's ditto, ditto, ditto. Or you read something else. But are you learning? Are you learning where our gladness and our joy come from? Are you learning about the glory of God? So there are a lot of things. But we need to make some distinctions in this idea that God simply has revealed himself in his word in the scriptures, and alone in the scriptures, we find sufficient hope, sufficient understanding of God, sufficient promises there. Sufficient. And not only is it sufficient, it's authoritative. So that when I can go back with any idea or philosophy or any uh, conclusion whatsoever or any application in any way, for the life of the believer, and I can come back to the Bible in its context and show it, then we have authoritatively come to the right conclusion. But don't we go backward? Don't we fix a couple of things that we've seen on YouTube, and then we become the guy that can fix it? And then we start a website, hey, I'll fix your radios. Nine ninety-five. send them to me. And it works for a while until we get that one radio that there's something else wrong. Wait a minute, the doohickey and the shrimadiggy is not the problem. It's the thingamabob. I don't have a video on the thingamabob. Sorry, i take this to somebody else. Could you imagine going to your doctor and you had a sore throat and you had an earache in your right ear and he could help you? And then the next week you had a runny nose and an earache in your left ear and he goes, ah, I don't do left ears. Sorry. There's our, the- there's our theology. There's our understanding of glory. There's our understanding of the, the Word of God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, God Almighty, the Father, and the Spirit. Glory. What does it mean? Let's make some distinctions for a moment. Let's talk about glory, if you will. If we go to John chapter 1, we're going to flip through some things. You can turn there if you want, or you know it, you can listen. John chapter 1, it tells us, The scripture tells us what? The scripture says that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and lived among us, tabernacled, took up camp. And we have seen his glory. So if we want to understand the glory of God, the first thing we need to understand as New Testament believers, 
as the church of Jesus Christ gathered together, then we need to understand that what the Bible teaches is that God's glory is completely visible to us. And it became flesh. We have seen the glory of God as of the only Son from the Father, and this is the namesake of our assembly, full of grace and truth. This is it. The glory. No one has ever seen God. As a matter of fact, ironically, no, it's not even a coincidence, John would say, for from his fullness we all received grace upon grace. This is verse 16 of John 1. And in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God, who is at the Father's side. He, the one and only God, at the Father's side, has made God known. That's what it says. And if you want some deeper understanding of that, or you want an hour and 20 minutes of that, you can go look at our sermons from several years ago in John chapter 1. But we see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Some of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And we can talk about that one. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness... What is, God, what is that God? That's the God of creation, the God that separates things, the God that reveals himself through creation and his power to put things where he wants them and call them good. The one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has what? Has shone in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the what? The glory of God. <gasps> so we know about the glory of God. We know what it is. But what's the next phrase? What's the qualifier? What's the explanation? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a second. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we've seen, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, I am the one that comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am. And then they picked up stones to kill him. Because he made himself out to be equal with I am. Not just saying he was God or a God, but the one and only God. The God that came from heaven. The one that was sent in the image of the Father, doing the work of the Father, preaching the words of the Father, knowing all that the Father knows and doing all that the Father does. That that I see the Father do, I do. This is the glory of God. So what does it mean? It means revealed. Glory means, very simply, to see something as it is. Now think about that for a second. Where do you see that in Scripture? Many, many places, but there's a lot of things where you, where you see. The, the psalmist would say what? The heavens declare you as you are. All right, so let's use that definition. We can see God for who He is in the heavens. We can see the stars and the planets and the earth and all the creation. The creation declares who you are. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. What does it declare about God? What part of His glory are we seeing? We're seeing Him as powerful, creator, sovereign, ruler, king, authority, life. See, John 1, in Him was the light of life. All things were created 
by him, nothing that was created, he did not create. And Colossians, the same thing. He created all things. So we see God and something about God revealed as he is in creation. But the Bible never says that creation, Romans chapter 1 doesn't say, well, we see that there is God, God is. Look at him, I see him, look at that bush out there. Look at that bird out there. And I do a lot of that. Guys, I'm, I'm a freak about just looking at stuff and enjoying knowing that my God created it. Just being in awe of what he made. Birds and cats and dogs and butterflies and fire ants. I like to watch fire ants. I'm just weird like that. Look at that. I used to know if I'm outside and I've got some food. Let's drop a hot dog. See how long it takes him to get that thing. Not long at all. Okay. I wonder if that was my foot. You know, no, no, I've never done that. But I thought about it. It creates an image of who God is in our mind. and We know something about him. But Paul says in Romans 1 that that understanding of God, that revelation, that exposure, let's use that word for a minute, that God exposing himself as creator, it just adds to our guilt. Because we know that we know that there is God and God is, and that he has done the work of creating things. We're not silly, but what we do is we know that, but we suppress it through any other means. And what is the means of suppressing that? We try to find a deeper understanding of things. We go to the, to the texture of things. We go to the root of things. We begin to cross-pollinate and, and deal with things in a way that says, you know, maybe I'm like God, I can change this plant. Or maybe we get to the deeper study of stuff and we start looking at cells. I mean, could you imagine 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, telling somebody about cells? You know, you're made up of a lot of little things. They'd have burned you at the stake. And they did, a lot of good scientists. And then we got to the sailor level and that wasn't good enough. Now we're getting to the level of, and it's old news, this is old, this is old science, but DNA the very building blocks of the cell, the very building blocks, the roadmap of what makes it, it. <laughs> wow, creation's amazing. There is no God. You see? That's what we do. Or worse, creation's amazing. I know there is a God. I'm safe. He's a God. And he loves me and all me and every me and only me. I mean, and my God does this, and my God says that, and my God believes this. Well, where'd you get that at? Well, you know, Mama said. Grandma always told me. Well, I don't think your grandma was Paul. And if she was, she didn't write that down. So God's glory, even though it can be seen in creation, is not salvific, is it? That revelation of God, that exposure of Him is not sufficient for us to go, there is a God, I believe. What do you believe? You believe what's obvious. I can believe I'm Superman, but I'm not going to survive a jump off the building. Our belief is not going to do anything. It's not going to muster some supernatural work. It's not going to make the creator of the heavens change things. No, it's not enough. So if God is exposed, he's seen as he is, we know how to esteem him. This is all about what glory. Glory is about God's reputation, showing who he is and what he's done. I like to use the word essence. The glory of God is the epitome of his essence. It's seeing him for everything that he is. 
always and has been. And it always reminds me of the time on Sinai when Moses was told to take by the power of God manifested in Egypt the people of God to get them out of imprisonment. This is a picture of God's sovereign election and His sovereign grace to create a people who were not a people, make them a people, call them His own, establish a promise and a contract with them that he would meet and then put them in the midst of the world and let them go into slavery as a rod of correction because they can't meet their end of the covenant. And the point is not to show that men are unable, though it does. The point is to show that only he is able. So God is revealed in the shadows of the Old Testament. And so God's glory is revealed. What Romans 9, right? It alludes to the reality of what we learned during this time of Pharaoh and Egypt. Where God says, I will raise Pharaoh up. And I'm going to change some words to point out the, the, the issue here. So that I may reveal my glory in him. My power in him. My essence in him. That I, my reputation may be poured out through my working with Pharaoh. Okay. Another way of looking at glory is fame. What do you rena- renown to be renowned to be known? So God was is 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 renowned for creation, but it won't save us. God is renowned for isolating a people out of the world and calling them His own. But then what happened? They sinned, and then God put them in captivity. And then God promised to take them out of captivity, to separate them again, to move them into a place of promise, a place of life, a place of prosperity, a place where they would live. And by His power, He revealed His glory in His destruction of these, and these plagues of destruction and punishment. And eventually, when God would take away the final, or put the final plague in, The Pharaoh relented and said, let him go. And then he changed his mind, right? So then God, in his power, revealed his glory for 40 years in the wilderness, providing bread that came from where? Heaven. And it wasn't a bread that that we could store up in our storehouses. It perished. You ate it or it perished. You had to depend upon God's promise of providing your sustenance as an Israelite in the wilderness every single day. No water. You had to wait on the Lord. Moses would speak or hit a rock, (laughs) you see, when you needed water. And there was this waiting. There was this resting. There was this wilderness experience of God revealing His glory and His promises and His power, exposing Himself for who He is. And all these happenings. And they get to Sinai shortly after this exodus. And they've remembered what they've seen. They've remembered what they've heard. And they see the tempest. I mean, let's think about this for a second. And the tempest of Sinai, the, the, the essence of God's glory it being exposed for who He is at Sinai was a horrifying thing. And we really see what the Scripture teaches us, right, in Exodus. And then we see what the Scripture teaches us in Paul's writing to the Hebrews in that letter there by named where he talks about that we're not there. That it was such a horrible sight that the instruction came down from the mountain that people did not want to hear anymore. 
They couldn't bear it. The instruction. What was the instruction? The commandment that if an animal touches the mountain, kill it. If anything touches this mountain, it should be stoned. Kill it. Because I'm God and nobody approaches me until I let them. Nobody approaches me until I expose my righteousness. It must die. Anybody approaching God without his righteousness dies. So Moses goes up on the mountain. And what happens, you know, he goes back down. And they've not only abandoned God, they've mocked him. Worshipping a golden calf. They didn't have supply chain issues back then. Didn't take long. But that's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is God's glory was revealed in that. But what does Moses ask for? Moses asked for something that comes to the glory. The gospel, the glory of the blessed God. Moses wants to see that. Moses wants to see God for all that he is. And what does God say? You can't. I can't show you what I am. Because if I reveal what I am to you, I've got to kill you. Because I'm not like you. I'm not like anything. I am only like me. That's what holy, holy, holy means, by the way. And there's nothing that you can see with the eyes you have that won't cause you to die according to the law that I just gave you. So God's, God's glory is revealed in the law. And so God says, Moses like, please, I want to see your glory. So God says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll walk by. And as I walk by, you can see the breeze and the shadow and the wind of the train of my robe. Now, this is an expression. God's not up there getting dressed. Matter of fact, he doesn't have, he's just saying, when I walk by, I'll let you glimpse at where I've been. That's basically what it is. I'll let you see where I just came from. And you can look at the place in which I was. And you get a, glimpse, you get a little glimpse. And it overwhelmed him. It overcame him. So much so that his face physically shone. And he came down and he was bright. Like me. <laughs> Pale. He was shining. And they said, cover your face. We can't stand it that you've looked where God has been. And you were reflecting something we can't look at. I mean, think about that for a second. You can't look at it. See, we're so endowed with the, the arrogance of our culture that we think we can just, hey, God, hey, big man, hey, old man in the upstairs. I need something. I know you're busy, but come on down here. I got a problem. I mean, that's the attitude. Never me. Yes, me. Yes, me. Yes, you. We. In our culture, we have this attitude that, that, that God is on the hook for us, that He's a 911 call away and He gets paid well, so He, he better answer. That's not the point. And the people didn't want to look at Moses who reflected the glory of God. What did it look like? I don't want to assume or speculate. But I think that the whole fullness of what Moses peered into 
was a reflection of what the cross accomplished. Now think about that for a second. God's glory is revealed in the prophets. God's glory is revealed in righteousness, in justice, in creation, in power. All these things. But none of them will save you. None of them will save His people. So God has said the very core of my essence, the very nature of my nature. I'm going to expose the most incredible aspect of who I am and what I am through Jesus Christ, who was an ordinary, ugly, Palestinian man. I think all men are ugly, so I'm not being sexist or racist in any way. <laughs> Some of you ladies, oh, not all men. Yeah, we're all ugly, okay? To each other, I guess. <laughs> but this Jesus, he didn't come out like an Adonis. He didn't come out shining with the, you know, he's not the Uncle Billy that we often see depicted, the pale skin and beautiful flowing permed hair and blue eyes and knocking on the door because he's trying to ask you if you're interested in learning about peace. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not him. This Bible says he was not much to look at. He was just a normal, average Joe in the flesh. But he was God. So it's not about how pretty Jesus was, or how masculine he was, or how tough he was, or how good-looking he was, or how in shape he was. It wasn't the fact that his voice sounded different. Oh, we know that's God. Every time he talks, lightning strikes. Hello. I mean, you know, something different about you. I know. <laughs> what do you want to eat? Boom. Oh, oh, this is my son. I mean, you know, I mean, we're trying to go to McDonald's. Eat unto my glory. I'm, can you see it? It's not like that. The fullness and the essence of everything that God says was most important about him was what? Who the person of Jesus Christ was and what he was about to accomplish and for whom. So, the good news, the gospel of the exposure of who God really is. This is what really matters. I mean, it's good that we know all these other things about who God is, but God has said the highest of all His glorification, all His glorified person, and I may not be saying that correctly, His essence, that He wants to reveal specifically and particularly to His people alone, is redemption. Is reconciliation. Is salvation. This special revelation is the glory of God in redemption. And this is what God has deemed as His ultimate revealed purpose. He alone separates. He alone saves. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And not everybody's going to see it, beloved. A lot of us have a lot of information that we know about God, but only those who have been shown by the power of the Spirit of God are able to see God for who He really is and to know Him intimately because He first loved us. And so this working of grace, this working of mercy, this working of love, all these are synonyms, is what God has done that reveals Himself most preciously 
most perfectly. Which includes his wrath, his justice and reprobation and all these other things because by design when we talk about God's mercy, these things are on the hook. Why would he need to redeem a people? Because we're, we're sinful. We deserve to die. Why doesn't he just redeem everybody? Because he chose the payment for our sins and he established that payment and it has been paid. I want you to understand that about the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It is a finished revelation. It is a completed exposure. The Son of God exposed in His humanity to shame and to hatred and to death and to abuse and to ridicule and to blaspheme. And that's not even the bad part. The bad part is that he was exposed to the righteous justice of God's wrath. And that God poured his wrath upon his son so that the sins of his people would be paid for forevermore. So as we've always said, the gospel of the glory of God is the finished work of Christ who substituted himself in righteousness for our unrighteousness in death for our life and it's finished. Faith knows it's finished. That's what God does when he grants us faith. Our hope and our resting is in what God has accomplished, not what God is trying to do. God is not trying to do anything. God has done it all. God is not hoping for anything. God has decreed all that is and will ever be. So we talk about sovereignty. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, even might even a little bit last week. We have to, it was actually a video, we have to remember that God is not like us. He is set apart and so far away standard that we are His creation. And nothing we can do can bring us to Him, can bridge the gap. He has done everything and the only thing that can bridge the two of us without death. And that is by killing His Son Jesus Christ for us. For His people. For the elect of God. Now sometimes it's hard for us to really to grasp that, but we teach it and we really talk about it a lot. I referred to 2 Corinthians 4 earlier. And Paul talks about this ministry that he has been given. And this is the last thing we're going to say, I promise. He says, therefore having this ministry by the grace of God, we do not lose heart. But what do we do? We renounce. We disavow. We put away disgraceful things. We put away underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning ways of getting people to hear about God. Or subverted ways or incomplete ways of revealing God. Because everybody can see God in power and God in creation. Read the stories. We refuse 
tamper with God's word. But what we do is by open statement. And we're going to launch pad into this as we continue into, into Timothy's letter. Paul's letter to Timothy. Open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And some people say, well, if we don't say this, or we don't do that, or we don't have this, or we don't go here, or we don't understand these things, then we can't always communicate effectively. It's not about our communication. It's about proclaiming the glory of God in the good report of Himself as Redeemer of His people through His Son, period. And then God supernaturally works in that hearing of that story in the lives and the ears of His people only and gives them ears to hear when He's ready and they believe. And they're settled. And the argument would be then, well... What about people who don't see and don't hear? It's not our concern. It's not our responsibility. We don't give hearing. We don't argue people into faith. We don't debate. We don't debate. And when we win the debate, people go, I never thought about that. By golly, I think I'll come to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus. He comes to you. How? Through the proclamation of the gospel. It's completely backward. It's completely backward the way the culture has abused the truth. And this isn't new. I've been preaching this my whole life, I guess. You know what I mean by that. As long as we've been together. So if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, and I'll leave this alone contextually and Let's just take it for what it says. In their, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing His glory. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, why would the God of this world... Who is the God of this world? In that text... It gives credit to God the Father. And he sends delusional spirits. He sends blindness. He sends the devil. Do his bidding. Folks, don't get it wrong. The devil's not running around destroying the work of God. He's doing the work of God. According to his purposes. I say, oh, that sounds like a cult there. It's not. It's biblical. Well, God gives him permission. He's got free reign. He does not have free reign. Nothing, listen to me, nothing happens outside the power and the decree of God. Nothing. Nothing. What about nothing? But, no, no but, nothing. If a gnat gets in my eye, so the Lord wills. That's it. So we rest in the will of the Lord, His provision, His power, His creation, which points to the gospel, or we fight against Him. We kick against the goats. We kick against the pricks. What are those? The spikes that make the ox move. Sticks in there. Hurts him. Don't fight against them. Just go with it. 
But you can't do that unless God's given you the eyes to see, the heart to rest, the knowledge of His glory, which is revealed in Jesus Christ, in whom we have life because of the shedding of His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your ultimate revelation, for your beautiful good news in the face of extreme ugly circumstances. Lord, how is it that our joy comes from such a macabre story that the perfect man, your son, in the flesh, was crushed and destroyed because of our guilt. Because, Lord, you are wiser than all, and your purposes shall reign. And so, Father, help us to be settled, even when we're shaken. Help us to be at peace, even when we are upside down and feeling hopeless. Remind us of your power and of your glory in Christ, that even in the worst of deaths, the worst of imprisonments, as your elect, beloved children, Father, we are able to be glad, even when we can't express it with our human faculties. So Lord, help us to find that subtle difference and help us to rest in the eternal hope that we have in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's take the Lord's table together.